0: Well, hello, Todd. We're here with another place Safety Detectives segment, and it's just you and I this week because Greg is at an undisclosed location, not answering his phone, so he's uh, probably on vacation someplace. He's been doing a lot of that lately. This means
1: that we can go completely wild on this particular show and do something we don't usually do.
0: Well, we're going to go off on a little tangent, I think. One of the things I'd like to do, there's two things that I would like to do this week. One is I'd like to mention to everybody about a growing event that's been occurring, and I've been following this for quite a while, and it's smoke in the cockpit. And uh, just last night, we had an airplane return here to Boston, a passenger airplane, for smoke in the cockpit. He was out over the Atlantic for... uh, maybe an hour, and uh, he came back and the airport it was still there this afternoon, so I don't know what they found, but I started uh, looking at this a while ago, and there's a lot of them. I mean, every week, there's four or five of them someplace in the world, and it, it just seems like it's a ho-hum. I, I don't know who's looking at it. I'm going to start probing Boeing and Airbus to see if they're taking a look at at. Uh, what these issues, what the findings are. You know, are they finding short circuits and wiring? Are they finding components that have have, uh, fried, cooked, you know, electrically cooked? So uh, I'm gonna follow that a little bit. We might get a show out of that in the future. And the second thing I wanna mention is, you know, since you started flying again, we have been getting every single week emails talking about your return to flight, the issues that you see returning to flight as an old gray-haired guy, and uh, as compared to a no-haired guy. <laughs> and uh, so I thought it would be a good idea if we just talked about some of your experiences. You've had a couple of unique ones uh, with damage to the airplane and, and so on. So, and following on that episode that we did with the young lady in Oshkosh, I mean, that got us a tremendous amount of comments, emails from that, on that young lady actually uh, talking about the mistakes that she made you know, and what she'd done. And the one, the one that has a very uh, pointed piece for this is that how concerned she was over the damage to the airplane since she didn't have insurance. And as I say it, oftentimes, and you have said it in the show, you know, Avemco is our sponsor and they have renters insurance and you need—you really need to make sure you have that uh, renters insurance if you're going to go fly because the damage that you cause could be quite severe. And I know you've gone and bought a policy. Is that my memory right on that? Your memory is
1: absolutely correct. And the thing is, um, I'm one of these people who I'll admit, I procrastinated. I know the numbers. I know the reality. I know that insurance is there for a reason. Uh, not just to protect your life, but to protect your assets. And if I rent a plane and I do rent the airplanes I fly and something happens, well, the renting organization, my flying organization, they have insurance to cover their needs. I need insurance to cover my needs because who knows? I might land on someone's million-dollar house and suddenly they're not going to come after the aero club. They're going to come after yours truly. So, uh, again, even if you don't have assets to protect, just remember that if you're flying, there is a risk involved. Part of that risk can be dealt with through insurance. The physical risk, insurance can't help you. Financial risk, it can help you. So, you know, if you think you don't need insurance, think again.
0: All right, so Todd, you, you had your, when did you get your license, in the 80s? I in the remember. 80s, in 1983, Oh, almost 40 years
1: ago. And uh, that is one of the things about my return to flight. I basically stopped flying my last logbook entry before I started flying in last year was 1989. So even though I had decades of experience in aviation, uh, working on the engineering side, looking at the policy side, analyzing data, and of course, talking about it um, on all sorts of venues, uh, I didn't actually go back into flying because at the time I didn't have a, a real re- reason to. And the reason I went back now in part was I want to understand general aviation better than I did before. I was in the larger jet aviation and military aviation before that. General aviation is a different kind of aviation. And one of those differences is it is not, how should I say it, uh, run like an organization, like a corporation or like a military organization. It is comprised of thousands of small organizations, hundreds of thousands, even millions of people. And if you're going to be a part of it, there's no way you can understand how every organization works. There's, there's no way you can understand how every kind of flying situation can happen. And the people who teach you, however experienced they are, however expert they are, it's one person's experience. Like a lot of you, you know, my primary relationship right now while I work on my instrument rating is with my flight instructor. Very experienced person, uh, flew with the airlines, has been a flight instructor for years, a wealth of knowledge. But even with that wealth of knowledge, there are still things that come up, especially when I'm alone, where I'm saying to myself, how do I deal with this? How do I find out about that? So I'm getting a bit ahead of the story here. Let me start at the beginning. Back in the 80s when I started to fly, actually in the 70s when I started to fly, where I got my information was from individuals. It was from my instructor. Where I got it was from physical documentation manuals, instruction books, you know, pilot handbooks, et cetera. Looking for anything beyond that was extremely difficult. I was fortunate. I had access to some very good technical libraries in the academic world, in the military, and in the corporate world, where I had access to all sorts of background data about aircraft incidents, accidents, techniques, et cetera. And I was lucky. Fast forward to
0: now, you don't have to be lucky. You raise a good point because I started on the general aviation side. I I learned to fly at a very early age and then transitioned to the airlines. And in the airline business, pilots have a lot of support. I mean, you have dispatchers, you have weather people, you have load masters, you have people doing the fuel for you. And the pilots monitor, check it, but they really don't have to do all the grunt work to get that done so it really is a different environment. And the same holds through for the corporate uh, world. A little bit less support, but it's still there for most corporate operators. You have a, a bunch of people on the ground that's going to take care of all those nitpicking items to get the airplane ready to get you off on a flight. So that's a big, a big difference. And in that environment, you come to rely upon your ground crew. You know, I, I watch corporate airplanes with their walkarounds, I've been bemoaning what I see on this show for over a year—the uh, the very poor walkarounds that uh, that I see corporate pilots doing. That I think that's complacency because they have so much support. So, but it falls out onto the field, away from home. You know, in your home base, all that support is, is all well and good. You still have to be on your guard, but, you know, most of the time, the people around you do the work. But when you get off in a remote location, it's a different ballgame. So when, when you're out someplace, you need to make sure you monitor and check everything. I know you do the fuel. You give them the fuel load. Sometimes the one of the charter companies I worked for, uh, we actually did the fuel at home base and called the FBOs and gave them the fuel load and did all of that to eliminate any possibilities of problems. We even did the frats, the risk analysis at home base, and we had the pilots redo it as part of our SMS program. The two frats had to agree or else we had to have a discussion. So that was an interesting uh, different twist at those higher levels that 135 and 121, when you're down in 91, it's you, baby.
1: <laughs> but but even though as a part 91 operation, as a, as a solo pilot, when I do fly solo, a lot of the responsibility is on me, but you don't have to fly alone in the sense of uh, you have the immediate community, not in my case, the organization I fly through and my instructor, but there is a broader community that you can reach out and touch now in ways that was impossible 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Let's take something as simple as weather. Uh, back in the old days when I first started to fly, sure, I would get weather reports, but uh, I had the local weather report on television, the local on on radio, but those weren't aviation specific. If I went out to the airport before I, I fly. I flew, I might have had some sort of weather report that might have been hours old, but it was uh, fairly limited, whatever they happened to have on hand at the time. Now, in the U.S. and elsewhere, 24-7, 365, you can get access to extraordinarily good weather from the winds at the airport you're going to fly to, the winds aloft, what the forecast is going to be 3, 12, whatever hours in the future. So being surprised by the weather is much less likely if you just take the effort to use what's out there. Now, certainly there are uh, parts of the training program, if you're becoming a private pilot or above, where you're going to be exposed to the weather information that's out there. I'll tell you, going through this again and acting like a new pilot, that is, let me take all the information that's coming to me through the formal education, there's a lot to swallow. And it's not a question of, I learned this to take the test, I pass the test, and I move on. Now, weather's a, a constant companion, and you constantly have to be aware of it, and you constantly have to reach out and figure out what it is. Relying on other people to do so, you can still do so like the old days, but why not rely on yourself? go to the aviationweather.gov. I think that's the URL website. If you're in Canada, go to the equivalent in Canada. If you're elsewhere, go to whatever resource you can, preferably one that's free, that has up to the minute official information as to the current weather and to the forecast. There's a service I deal into now. I text, you know, METAR and the ICAO code for the airport. The text comes back with the current weather. Or the forecast weather, if I do it for, for an airport that has you know forecast weather a few hours in advance. So I don't have to guess. It's like, what is it right now? What is the
0: latest report? Yeah, and we see so many accidents that happen because pilots don't pay attention to the weather. It may have been okay when they were planning their flight before they left. And then they leave and all of a sudden they see weather's closing in on them. And, you know, they may try to scud run, go down underneath it. And get caught, can't go back, uh, can't go anywhere, and uh, the outcomes with those are not very good, and we see that all too often. So it's not only the weather where you are and weather where you're going; it's also the weather in between. So if you're only doing short hops, that's uh, a lot easier. But if you're going a thousand miles, uh, you know, in a little airplane, and you're going to take six or eight hours. There's, you know, the weather changes, especially today with with all kinds of crazy weather. I mean, growing up, we never would have 90-degree weather in Boston for any length of time. And here we've had it for over a month, and not only just 90, 93, 94, 95. So that's hot for up here. So there's a lot of changes in the weather, and you really need to stay on top of it. In fact, the accident that we did last week in Palo Alto, mm-hmm. you know, kinds of twists and turns in that we're going to finish that episode next week or the week after and uh, weather played a significant role in that in the outcome of that the negative outcome in that
1: now getting back to what i was saying about information get online i was talking about information from your traditional sources um, your faas your ntsb your uh, noaa weather uh, resources these are the big organizations that have been around before the internet. These are the organizations that, at the very beginning of the World Wide Web had stuff online. I remember getting stuff from the FAA and the NTSB back in the early 1990s. But the real change, in my opinion, was in the last 10 to 15 years with all kinds of social media that we have. YouTube in particular is one of the best educational resources you can have, especially for tiny things. And I'll give you an example. When I first started flying, even the simplest things I'd forgotten from 30 years before, like how do you tie down the airplane? What's the the best knot to use to tie down the aircraft? Well, of course I could take my uh, instructor's time and have them teach me for 15, 20 minutes where I'm being charged however many dollars an hour. Or I said to myself, well, gee, I use uh, YouTube for all sorts of home repair. I wonder if somebody's put together a video on how to tie down an aircraft. I went on there, searched for about two minutes, found about four videos, found one of them that hit the spot exactly. It's like, this is so easy. Whenever I have some tiny issue with an aircraft, for example, what are the pros and mi- pluses and minuses of a particular kind of instrument? Well, I can see if somebody's put something together on that. I can look at it and learn from that and maybe have a question or two I can take to my instructor, or better yet, I answer my question and I don't worry about it anymore. So for those of you who are in your 20s and 30s or teens, you've always had the internet. This has been something that's like natural for you. For those of us who are of a certain age, unless you make the effort at some point to learn how to do things as simple as how to use a search engine, how to get into the internet to get information and not get lost and go down a rabbit hole and waste time. yeah, you know, I all the time use the internet for specific pieces of information. What's the wording of a regulation? What regulation got changed? And what does that mean for what I'm doing right now? If I get a question wrong on a practice test for an instrument exam, let's say, I can go to the source and, and look at several ways of that same issue where I got it wrong and try and understand it better than I did before I took the test. By the way, what, now we're mentioning testing. I got to do this because I actually got some props for this show. now. I had to take an instrument exam. If you're gonna get instrument uh, rating, you have to do that. And there's various ways you can practice for it. You can go to the FAA site. They have some basic practice materials and there are a lot of corporate uh, entities out there that sell you things. And I'm not advertising these as the best or the worst. I'm just saying this is what I use. ASA was one, Gleam, I think I pronounced that right. Gleam or Glide is another publisher that publishes study guides, just like studying the SAT. There are study guides out there for every kind of test you can take. Now, one of the things I realized about these two is they d- go at it a little bit differently. They word it a little bit different from the FAA. That's okay. That's just like going to an SAT and doing, you know, Kaplan Nerves versus, you know, Princeton Review. Same kind of deal. But one thing that was really different between these two. The ASA, if you buy an ASA guide for a test, they have a code on the inside that allows you to take five practice tests. So let's say this book costs $20. Not only can I study the book and do a practice test in the paper book, I can go online and take an online version of this test. Not the same test because they mix and match the questions, just like an SAT practice test. There are five tests. This book was test prep for an instrument rating. I can use those five on any test that this company offers. For example, I use two or three before I pass my instrument exam, I use the other two or three I had left over to do practice tests for instrument ground instructor and advanced ground instructor. So basically for, you know, on the order of 20 bucks, I not only got all the material in this book, I got a chance to practice under real conditions or semi-real conditions, five different tests. Speaking of which, a lot of these test guides have online versions or PDFs of the supplements you need. As many of you know, if you take a test, there's usually a supplement. You go into the test room, you have a computer, you have this physical supplement. Now, I use another service that had their supplement online. You click, 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 and you do it. I said to myself, when I take this test for real, I'm not going to do the supplement online. I'm going to have the supplement in front of me in the test room. So I went and got a supplement and had this and practiced on the physical book when I was at home. So when I took the test for real, it was an easy transition to doing it at the physical book fair, little things like that. But let's go to what you hinted at at the beginning, which I think is probably the best part of this show for me. I talked about in an earlier show about how when I was inspecting the aircraft I was flying that day, the wing, one of the wings had brand new nuts and bolts in it when I was moving around the, the flaps and whatnot. I'm wondering, What's going on here? Why are these bolts clean? And the other wing has bolts that look like they've been out for a while. Turns out that this aircraft had been in an incident. It had a wingtip strike and it got repaired and put back into service. Airplane works perfectly fine. Now, from my days doing a larger jet aviation, I would sometimes use the Freedom of Information Act to find out information about accidents and incidents. And I thought, I used to do it before for bigger airplanes. Why don't I do this with this airplane. And I got the Freedom of Information Act requests through. It was very easy, all online. Go straight to an FAA office. They sent me the details about a month later. Very detailed write-up of the incident. Very detailed to the point of they talked about the damage to various parts of the aircraft. And I found out something from the Freedom of Information Act request. Not only was there wingtip damage, there was also minor damage to the tie-down ring on the tail of the airplane didn't affect the structure of the airplane. It was just a slight damage to that. It's a minor thing, but it's like, I knew that this was a wingtip strike. The people at the organization I fly through told me there was a wingtip strike. No one told me about damage to the other part of the aircraft. Now the damage had no effect on the controllability or the structural integrity of the aircraft, but it's one of those surprises where if you go out and find the information, you'll find something that you might find useful or at the very least surprising. And one more thing, this is a warning to people out there. If you're a pilot, if you are in fact any kind of person who has to get a certification from the FAA and something happens in your career, you're involved in an incident or accident or whatever, information about you might show up in a public database. This FOIA request, not only did I get the details of the incident, I got the pilot's name, his birthday. Various other pieces of personal information. Now, he's in my organization, and you know it's not. I don't care that this happened to him. It was an incident. It happened, it could have happened to anyone. But for those of you who might think, oh, if I do something a little bit crazy, and even if I get slapped on the wrist by the FAA, what's the worst that could happen? Okay, let's say you do something stupid. Yes, I said the S word. And you think, well, it was stupid. It was useful in this discretion. I'm gonna apply for this job years later. They're not going to find out about it. What if they do their homework and they find out that you were in some incident or accident and they do what I did? They do a FOIA report. The FOIA report has details that you didn't share that you should have shared. Now, this isn't a warning to those of you who make an honest mistake because honest mistakes happen. This is a warning to those people, and I know there are a few, who do things that, for whatever reason, in retrospect, they regret. Just remember one thing. The internet and the FAA have one thing in common. They never forget.
0: You know, and you raise a good point there. Over 40 years ago, I uh, had a friend uh, at a job I worked at. And he was going for another job. And as a teenager living in the city, he got arrested once. For drinking on the the stoop, the stairs to tenement buildings in the city, common occurrence. You know, they must have given the the cop some lip or something, and the cop ran a whole bunch of them in. And he didn't disclose that. It cost him the job. But yet we saw other people that did far worse, and they got the job because they disclosed what they did. And I never forgot that. And when I went through my security clearance uh, to go to the NTSB, I, uh, I had an incident that, that uh, occurred when I was a teenager. And I made sure I gave them all the details that I could remember. Uh, because facing the, what you did is the easiest way out. Trying to hide it, like you said, you can't get away from it today. It's just out there. It just never goes away. And following
1: up on what you just said, let's say you are involved in an incident or an accident, and it's not something you're ashamed of, not something that was, you know, embarrassing to you, but let's say in the fullness of time you forget some details of it. When an incident happens and you're involved, do a Freedom of Information Act request on that incident. Find out what the NTSB or the FAA said about you and that incident. One thing, if there's anything factually incorrect, you can bring it to their attention and correct it. On the other hand, you're covering yourself. If someone asks you in the future, what happened during this event? And you give a, a narrative. They say, oh, yeah, I don't believe you. I say, okay, look, I did the Freedom of Information Act request. This is what you or anybody else can get from the government. Here it is, unredacted. Read it yourself. This is what I say happened. This is what they said happened. I have no other information to get. Yeah,
0: that's a good point for everybody to keep in mind, especially today. With with the hiring spree that's going on, we have lots of student pilots uh, that are in just to to become airline pilots, and they need to pay attention to all those little details because uh, company policies will keep you out of the cockpit with certain events, uh, certain things that you don't disclose. You have to look at it from the employer's point of view. If you try to withhold something, try to hide something that happened to you in the past, What about in the future when you work for me, the company, right? You're going to try to hide events that I should know about. So they take a very negative view of that. So a word to the wise to everybody out there, if you are involved in something, uh, own up to it. Like Todd says, get the documentation and have it ready to, to explain it to people. You know, that young lady that we had on the show, she had everything down. She did a detailed analysis herself. And we talked about it on the show that she went over everything. She did her own risk assessment and identified where she could have uh, improved and what she could have done to prevent that from happening.
1: And as a teaser, I actually recommended that she do a freedom of information act request in her event. And I also did a freedom of information act request on that event. And when I do get the documentation, if she doesn't have it already, I'll share it with her for sure. And I hope to uh, go through that. And, compare what we heard from the previous episode with what the FAA or the NTSB said in the incident and give you a fuller picture of the full story of what happened in this incident, which if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Uh, This is someone who I think is her first solo flight had an incident and because of her aeronautical decision-making skills, she kept this from being a potentially tragic incident. So again, if you haven't seen that particular episode, I highly recommend it. And on a more positive note, in general, my overall point was one of the biggest changes between 30 plus odd years ago when I was flying and now is that there's plenty of information out there, plenty of tools for you to use. Some of them are online, online, but not all of them. For example, we're doing this show on Zoom right now. And in fact, thanks to John's influence, I have signed up to work with an educational organization where I'm going to be doing online education, teaching a course on aviation safety. So this is something that I didn't consider using a few years ago. I had no idea that I could actually teach a college level course remotely using the tools of the internet. Now I know it's possible. Now I'm going to do what I can to make it happen. So whatever it is that you're doing as a pilot or an air traffic controller or a student who's studying about aviation or just an interested person, there's a wealth of information online from official and unofficial sources. That will answer your questions, they'll give you insights, they'll give you a leg up on, on, on knowledge and allow you to be a better person in the aviation world.
0: But I can tell you, it's a very short period of time, once you start teaching, uh, they're gonna have some very good, good feeling moments. I guess it's the easiest way to say it. When you see the light bulb go on in these young kids And that they get whatever it is you're trying to convey with them. You know, I I routinely say I want to teach them not to make the mistakes that I made. And I made a few. So if I can prevent just one of those from being made uh, by somebody new coming into the business, it's a a very rewarding moment. I'm looking forward to those moments. All right. Well, I think we've talked this issue to death. Is there anything else that you can think of? The only thing
1: I can think of is,
0: as with every episode,
1: we need to have a last word. And that last word will not come from these lips. They'll come from yours.
0: Right. Well, as always, my last word always has to do with when you're going to go flying. And if you're going to go fly an airplane, before you leave the house or the hotel room, do some pre-planning. Look at the weather. Look at what you're going to do. And then when you get to the airport, do it all over again. Make sure nothing has changed, especially the weather and if your fuel requirements or, and whatever else. When you get out to the airplane, do a good pre flight. I mentioned on the, I think it was on the last show, that uh, that we actually had done a recent uh, uh, accident involving a lousy pre flight. And I see them on the, on the, uh, accident reports all the time where they should have been picked up should have been should have been seen we're going to talk about some of the mechanic traps that that are left for pilots i just picked up a nice one uh, yesterday and so those are coming up on the show but do a good pre-flight when you get in the airplane uh, make sure that everything has been secured once you break the ground. Before you break ground, make sure you know what's going to happen if you lose an engine. Where are you going to put it? We've seen several of those recently where they've lost an engine on the airport. They haven't even gone over the fence yet. And they try to make the turn, the impossible turn to come back. which they should have already decided what's in front of them and where we can put it. And they should have done that before they got in the airplane. But I see so many people accidents where they didn't do that and the unexpected happened and there's no place to go because they didn't prepare for it and after you get in the air put that head on a swivel the number of of mid-air collisions we're seeing just unbelievable just one a few days ago and uh, three people dead because of it just because they're not looking out not paying attention to what's around them so having said that If you're going to go flying, please fly safely.
2: To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.